for anything significant to happen, certainly anything that involves dozens of people, let alone hundreds or thousands, the amount of will that has to go in, what I've been learning this whole time, is how to do that without creating an environment where it's you know, entirely top-down. Stuart Butterfield was born in a log cabin in British Columbia. He went on to study philosophy in college and teach himself to code. Then he co-founded Flickr, and then a video game startup that evolved into one of the leading work communication tools, Slack. On this episode of View from the Top, the podcast, Butterfield shares what he learned about innovation in the face of failure, and why he's creating a company culture that walks the walk when it comes to diversity. You're listening to View from the Top, the podcast. Awesome. Hello. Stuart, it is a pleasure to have you here today. Thank you. How are you doing? I'm well. Cool. So typically we would start these with a question asking the students, how many of you use Slack? But since it's the official communication platform for the GSB, uh, we're going to have to do something a little different. How about a game of two truths and a lie? All right. Cool. So up here on the screen, in just a second, um, we're going to see three statements that I pulled from my extensive research of your past. We're going to ask the audience to guess which one of them is a lie. So statement one, you were born with the name Stuart Butterfield. Okay. Statement two, you have two philosophy degrees. All right. Statement three, Flickr, your first successful startup, was conceived while battling with food poisoning. Okay, so the audience, raise your hand if you think statement one is false. Oh, wow, that's a lot of people. <laughs> raise your hand if you think statement two is false. Okay, raise your hand if you think statement three is false. Okay, Stuart. People are pretty good, it's number one. It's number one. So you were not born Stuart Butterfield. I was born Dharma Jeremy Butterfield to uh, hippie parents in a little town called London, British Columbia, which is literally the end of the road. So Pacific Coast Highway is the same road that goes all the way down to Chile and then all the way up um, to where the fjords of British Columbia and the fact that there's no, really, there's no people living any further north um, means that it was um, foolish to continue building the road. So <laughs> born there and grew up in a log cabin for the first couple of years. Grew up in a log cabin. Abe Lincoln also grew up in a lot. Very, yeah, that's why I, I, I bring it up, for the positive associations. <laughs> yeah, so trust me, I understand. My parents named me Travorsky Tylen Garrett. Um, and as a four-year-old, I was not writing Travorsky on every spelling test. Yeah. Uh, so I go by Tylen, and you actually know me by Ty. Yeah. So... T-Y is very... There you go. <laughs> I think it's like, so when I was 12, I really wanted to be normal. And... Um, for some reason, I thought Stuart was a normal name, like Mike or something like that. <laughs> and uh, Stuart's a, it's a pretty bad name. Like, you'll notice this after I say it. it. Anytime you watch a movie, TV show, there's a character named Stuart. There's like the, the jerk version. Um, and then there's like the sad sack kind of loser version. There's never, <laughs> like, there's never a protagonist with the exception of the mouse, Stuart Little. Stuart Little. <laughs> that was one of my favorite movies growing up. So if you could pick any name today, what would it be? It would be Dharma Jeremy Butterfield. That's a sick name. <laughs> cool. So you, you hinted a little bit on your parents. Um, 
what have been the most lasting influences from their parenting style? Whew, that's a good question. I mean, it's hard to um, it's hard to separate out that from what life would have been without those influences. Um, my mom is incredibly supportive to the extent that when I was 16, um, I, uh, I got in a car accident, just totaled the car, my dad's car, uh, and my mom's reaction was, well, it's really good that you did that because you learned an important lesson about driving safety, <laughs> which is not the reaction I was expecting. Um, my dad was a real estate developer, and uh, real estate um, development usually works the People incorporate a new entity for each project or each development. Maybe there's a management company that takes management fees, but it kind of isolates the um, the investments, which means that it's like you know creating a business over and over again. Like every two or three years, there's a fundraising cycle, and there's kind of putting together the vision and a, and a plan, um, and then over the next decade or so, that that uh, plays out. So. Um, I think that was a big influence for me just because I got to see the development of, I don't even know, but you know, over the course of my, my childhood, once I was aware of what was going on, maybe five or six different businesses. Um, wow. And uh, that was good practice, because I, I think I started looking at the world that way. That's cool, that's cool. Um, so you were born Dharma Butterfield. You were raised by parents who aspired to live off the land. It only makes sense that you would be drawn to technology. Um, so what led you to teach yourself to program at the age of seven? Um, I, computers were just so cool. And even, like, you know, you see now any three-month or six-month-old is just drawn to the iPad in a way that um, seems like it must be indicative of, like, a lower-level brain function that was hijacked in order to, to be attracted to this. So for me, um, any, any screen, just like you know, any, any child, any screen was just super attractive. But the idea that you could control what appeared was really magical. And um, this 1979, uh, 1980, somewhere around there, I got an Apple IIe at home. So um, and we had one in the classroom. So the very first class at my school uh, to have a computer in the, in the classroom. And I would buy a copy of a magazine called Byte, which in the back uh, a couple of pages had programs that you could just type out yourself in, in Apple Basic, and you could change a couple things and see what happened. And um, it was really, uh, I, I have difficulty describing like why it had such a powerful hold. But what was interesting is if you fast forward like you know 20 years, there was um, you know I liked I had an early game console called Nintelevision. So liked video games like most boys my age. There was a you know, arcades where you went and put quarters in machines and stuff like that. But computers themselves became less and less interesting to me over the course of high school. But when I got to college, I got an, an account on the school's Unix machine and discovered the internet. This was 1992. And that was just totally um, mind-expanding. And you know, I almost couldn't believe that such a thing was possible. And it had but, like, the same feeling of wonder, but to a higher degree because it was like we as a species had developed the ability to transcend geography in a much more profound way than like long distance phone calls had or the telegraph had. You could find community, I grew up in, uh, was going to college in Victoria, British Columbia, which is again on the edge of the continent, very remote, kind of provincial. Um, and you could find people who were interested in exactly what you were anywhere in the world and that communication was happening at the speed of light. So that really opened it up and then Fast forward another 10 years, um, 
So like in the early 2000s, I had this experience finally where I had my laptop with me. And what at one point in my life had been like the Steve Jobs bicycle for the mind, like this incredible machine that you know, anything was possible and um, all this amazing software, when it wasn't connected to the internet was inert. It was basically kind of useless. It was like a rock. So it's a very interesting experience to think about like the successive um, layers of what really matters. The first one being that ability to run arbitrary code, so to generate more or less anything that a, a human can imagine. Um, and then the ability to put all of those together. And I think that was uh, like the thing that has guided my career ever since, is the exploration of that idea of computing technology as a means of facilitating human interaction. It's amazing. So that's what drew you to technology initially, but you actually studied philosophy. So what inspired that decision? Um, I really wanted to do um, a degree in cognitive science, but the school that I went to didn't have Cognitive science. So it was, cognitive science is usually computer science, um, psychology, linguistics, and um, psychology. And so I wanted to take courses in, in all four um, to do an honors degree in psychology. It was like every single course was a requirement. In fact, you had to do like extra. Whereas philosophy is a pretty light set of requirements, um, even to do an honors degree. So I chose philosophy literally like that. It was like the of those four, the one that had the fewest requirements. But after I started studying it, um, even though I was like, it was really, I did philosophy of mine, I was really interested in neuropsych as, a, as an undergrad. Um, the fundamentals of philosophy I found super fascinating. And this, is, this is, sounds bad, um, and it is bad in one sense, and it's good in another sense. So you think about the last 2,500 years of kind of um, the history of, of inquiry of all different kinds. At some point, everyone was a philosopher. Um, like the, if you were interested in the world in an a-religious way, so like the, the beginnings of science, um, it was philosophy. At some point, mathematics, geometry, astronomy split off. Um, over the next many hundred years, um, things like biology in the 19th century split off into its own discipline, and psychology, um, anthropology, sociology, computer science, linguistics, uh, women's studies, until all you had left was like an area of inquiry that is not directed at anything except for like itself and language. Um, so in one sense, it's really boring. So if you didn't ever study philosophy and you pick up a book of like contemporary Anglo-American analytic philosophy, it is super, super boring. Like, it's almost impenetrable um, without like this giant vocabulary of ways to get into it. Um, but once you're into it, I, I still find it really um, fascinating because there's so many unanswerable um, questions. It's good to know. So who was the most influential philosopher to you? I have a pretty broad range, and I liked um, all kinds of, of, of thinkers, but like back to Aristotle, Spinoza, more contemporary, um, Klein and, and Donald Davidson. But if there was one, um, it was Wittgenstein, because that's why I uh, ended up going to Cambridge. Amazing, amazing. So we're in 1997 now. You're armed with two philosophy degrees and a name fit for a philosopher, Butterfield. Mm -hmm. But you decided to become a web developer. Um, what led you back into technology? Well, um, so like I said, I got to college in 92, which was like, like at least for my awareness, six months to maybe a year before the web really took off. 
like I think Mosaic had been invented, but wasn't really widely deployed. So the internet was email, IRC, a Unix program called Talk. Um, more than anything else, it was Usenet. Um, and that meant that as soon as the web became a, a you know, popular medium that started supplanting things like Gopher and, and Waze, um, I was there. And it was really, the HTML back then was just dead simple. Um, so very easy to teach yourself. So in 93, um, I was, well, I don't know, one of five people in my hometown who knew HTML, um, which meant that in 94, 95, 96, every year my, um, my, my summer job, but also just my job during the school year was making websites for people who didn't know how to make websites because pretty much no one did. Um, and it was like 98, I finished my uh, master's and was enrolled in the PhD. And um, it was the beginning, so a friend of mine had just finished his PhD in philosophy um, and uh, went to a great school and, and, and did great thesis work and was really um, like at the top of the range and got his first job, which was at the University of Louisville in Kentucky, and he really didn't want to live in Kentucky, and it was a crappy job with low pay, and it's a sessional position, so it renews every nine months. Um, and I thought of how many hoops I had to jump through just to get to that point. Um, or, because it was 98, and the dot-com thing was starting to take off, and I knew the web, and all of my friends who were um, like early web people were moving to San Francisco and getting jobs that paid two or three times as much, and it was exciting and dynamic, and we were changing the world. So um, I, uh, I had advice from a couple professors over the course of my career who essentially were, this is a terrible life. Please don't become an academic. If you're interested in this stuff, you can uh, subscribe to the journals and, and attend the conferences. Um, you don't have to actually do a PhD and then go be a professor. So I, I took that advice. OK. <laughs> That's good to know. Um, so I'm actually curious. Uh, raise your hand if you have a humanities degree. OK. Keep your hand raised if you're considering a career in technology. OK. So um, my question there is, what were the advantages and disadvantages in having a humanities degree within the technology industry? It's tough because, I mean, there's, there's multiple technology industries. So when I would say when I started in 98, like the, the web was tech, but it was populated much more by people with a background in like graphic design or architecture if you're making um, web development. The serious back-end programmers, um, had a parallel track to web server development, but it was really uh, like a totally different era, and there, there wasn't anything in between like the architects and the graphic designers on one side, and the people, this won't be a familiar reference to many of you, but the people using WebLogic and um, ATG, Dynamo, and um, these, like, from today's contemporary perspective, kind of really horrible um, application servers that had a fundamentally different approach to doing web development. It was stateful applications, um, things like enterprise Java beans. And so I don't think it really made any difference what your background was at that point. It could have been um, history, it could have been finance, it could have been physics. Uh, and meanwhile, there's a, a different technology industry, which is like all of the descendants of Fairchild Semiconductor and um, you know, Intel and HP and, and a bunch of companies that were you know, native to, to this area. But that was completely different. Like it would, you know, the design of circuit boards and, and processors and the manufacturing computers was totally unrelated to the web. And still today, I think we say tech industry broadly. I think mostly what people mean is, um, at least 
around the Bay Area is companies that receive VC backing as opposed to anything else. They're not necessarily specifically technology companies. And the um, you know the side effect of software eating the world in the famous Mark and Reason phrase is that every company is a technology company. So you can look at like I don't know Visa or Mastercard um, probably employ close to an order of magnitude more software developers than Stripe. Um, even though everyone would say Stripe is a, is a technology company, um, is PayPal a financial services company or a tech company? Is Airbnb a tech company or a hospitality company? It's really, it becomes increasingly hard to, um, to make that distinction, unless you mean like technology is Huawei making 5G antenna chips, and it's like um, Dell, and then software businesses like Slack. <laughs> Thank you for that. Um, so you worked as a web designer for a few years before starting a video game company and launching your first video game, Game Never Ending. What was your vision for that game? So um, when I said 92, the thing that was most interesting to me about the internet was Usenet. Usenet is, a, for those of you who don't know it, um, a hierarchical directory of news groups. And it covered more or less everything. So they began with the three-letter um, abbreviation. So SCI was science, and there was science, physics, and Geology and, and so on, and then rack rack dead Grateful Dead was in '92 the uh, the Netflix of its time um, in the sense that it used more bandwidth than any other single thing on the internet. Um, there's so much traffic of people discussing um, Grateful Dead um, that it kind of just surpassed everything else. So. Um, 93, I guess, probably a year later, I had the first experience of having a crush on someone that I had never actually met. It was just like from her online persona, her SIG files, the things she said in, in comments. And um, the, the idea that that kind of connection was possible was, I mean, this really early um, stage, but it was like very interesting to me. You go forward to 98, 99, 2000, and people had blogs. There were the early social networks, like Six Degrees, and then um, Friendster was probably 2002-ish um, around there. But people had started kind of developing a persona and having interactions with other people over the internet in a bunch of different virtual communities. Some of those were really explicit, like um, the Wells, or, or like one of the ancient ones, but bulletin board systems, um, discussion boards, uh, moos, kind of like interactive um, chat-based games. And the, you know, I said earlier that the idea of social interaction mediated by computing technology, like the new possibilities that it opens up was a thing that was really fascinating to me. So when you say game, I think people have the assumption that um, there's puzzle games, and there's shooting games, and there's sports games, and stuff like that. This was none of those, and this was just play as a pretext for social interaction. So this is uh, a description that may or may not have appeal to some of you. I will tell you that it does not have broad commercial appeal. Um, <laughs> and that's uh, it's this like whimsical world of like absurdist humor and kind of um, hopefully delightful little um, things to discover, but it's mostly like a venue for people to interact and to, and to um, form community with one another. And super popular among the small group of people for whom we, we developed this prototype and, and we're testing it, but that was 2002. So um, some of you are 
probably were just little babies in 2002. But there was the dot-com crash, which started in 2000. Um, there was the WorldCom and Enron accounting scandals. There was 9-11. It was just like a really dark time for um, financial markets. Um, the NASDAQ was down, I think, 80 or 85% from its peaks. And the S&P 500 was down 65%. It's kind of like hard to imagine. Um, you know, even in comparison to 2008. So no one wanted to invest in internet stuff, period. But definitely no one wanted to invest in web-based massively multiplayer games. That was just like as frivolous as you could possibly be, which meant that no one would invest in us, and we didn't have enough money to finish it, and we tried to cast around for something that we could do with the technology that we had developed that would create a commercially viable product. And that turned out to be Flickr. Yeah, so ironically, game never ending did end. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> how did you feel when you realized you had to shut down the game? Um, horrible. Um, but you know, at the same time, it kind of happened. Like We were developing Flickr and, um, and the games side by side for a couple of months. The decision to make Flickr and then its launch was you know, three months separating those. So it happened pretty quickly. Um, but in that case, you know, it felt like it was a, it was a path forward. The, the team got to stay together. Um, we had, uh, I think we disappointed a lot of people who were playing it, but also a lot of them were like, well, cool, Flickr's interesting too, and they just kind of migrated. Um, so that wasn't that bad. That's good. So you realize you have to shut down the game, but not before flying to one last video game conference in New York. What happens next? Um, so it was a conference on law and virtual worlds, and it was in New York, and uh, flew from Vancouver, where I was living, and got food poisoning on the flight. And um, I don't want to make it too vivid, but it's just like puking in the immigration hall at JFK, puking in the cab on the freeway, get to the hotel, and, and like step out of the cab and puke all over the carpet of the hotel. Um, so sorry, a little, little vivid. Um, but I, I, like, I, I couldn't keep down anything, like ginger ale, water. Um, and um, that night at like three in the morning after being up and kind of feverish and frantic, uh, wrote out the whole first version of Flickr, like the, what, it would, what it would be and how it would take advantage of those technologies. I will say this though, um, that was the very first version which is very different than one it ended up becoming and was not actually very good. That it got, us, got us going. So I am yet to have a battle with food poisoning be so productive. Um, so kudos to you there. You decided to focus on Flickr. Um, when you made that shift, did everyone on your team buy in immediately, or what was that process like? Uh, no, we, we, so I'm a pretty democratic leader sometimes. Um, <laughs> maybe less so now than, than back then. Uh, but we had a vote, and there was a tie. And I was, ugh, I was like, ugh. So I called um, Eric Costello, who's actually one of the founders of, of Slack as well. Um, and just like did some background lobbying to get him to change his vote so that we could go ahead with it. Uh, there's definitely like there's people who were still interested in um, making the game and felt like it was a shame to, to leave it behind. It was also I think in terms of the number of people online, way too early. The technology um, that was available way too early. Like it, I think people forget. 2002 was the first year that any country got more than 50% internet, internet penetration at home, and that was the Netherlands. So, and even then, that was almost all dial-up connectivity, so most Americans didn't have um, internet access. If they did, it was at work, and it was very kind of narrowly prescribed. And if they did anything online, it was like maybe check sports stores and, and like stock prices or something like that. Um, 
So there wasn't really a, a market for it. But um, you know, I just like making software just in the same way that I did when I was seven years old. And I think everyone else on the team did too. So we just got to make a different kind of software. And in the end, it was, um, you know, the game was play as a pretext for social interaction. Flickr was photography as a, as a pretext for social interaction. It was the first, um, actually one of the, we got bought by Yahoo and one of the designers there called it massively multiplayer photo sharing, which I thought was pretty accurate because it was the first thing um, other than, uh, than web shots, which I heard about later, where you could put a photo online and people could see it. Um, and comment on it, and you could have a title and description, and you could tag it and um, create groups and, and all of that kind of stuff. So it was a, a social network that revolved around um, photographs. And this is like, I think it's, we started um, right around the same time as Facebook, but Facebook was still you know, just at Harvard for another six months or a year, and then just the Ivies for another uh, close to a year after that. Cool. So not to spoil the story, but you eventually sell Flickr to Yahoo for excess of $20 million. Um, I'm curious, looking back now as you're leading Slack, what lessons from your time at Flickr have been most influential on the leader that you are today? It's, it's hard to say because it was so long ago. Like We started development in 2003, um, launched in, in 2004, and then... Um, the summer, sorry, the winter break, like 2004, 2005, there's this big decision about whether we're going to take VC funding or we're going to get bought by Yahoo. Um, so it's 2005 to 2008 that I was there, and like it's, there's definitely not a, something that stands as like the thing that I learned um, there, other than how hard it is to, um, how hard it is to get something done, or how hard it is, I mean, maybe that's, that is a good lesson, how hard it is to get something done in an organization of that size, because Yahoo is about 12,000 people. And um, I think there's a couple things that were wrong with it at that time, but the biggest one was it had basically stopped growing, and in an environment where the, the pie isn't growing anymore, suddenly the, um, the kind of game theoretic, the, the calculus uh, especially among executives, is very zero-sum. So it was like people battling each other um, internally. But even to forget that for a second, any company of any organization of 10,000 people, it is, requires such an uh, extraordinary injection of will to, for, to make anything happen um, that most things are, for all practical purposes, impossible. Okay, so we fast forward to 2012. Uh, you have left Yahoo, which, by the way, if you have not read... Stewart's resignation letter from Yahoo. Please Google it. He likens himself to a tinsmither named Brad. Um, it's quite hilarious. So it's 2012. You're starting another video game company, this time TinySpec. At TinySpec, you launched a game called Glitch. What gave you more confidence in the gaming area this time around? So it's 2009 that we started the company. Um, in 2012 is when we, we shut it down. But it's the same group of people, you know, so four of us who had worked on Flickr and we all worked at Yahoo together. But 2002 to 2009 was a pretty amazing time um, in the history of the internet. So suddenly everyone had internet access um, and there were phones that were capable of internet access. There was um, Blackberries and Trios and um, there were, uh, you know, a lot of people had high-speed internet by that time. Um, the world of, uh, open source software specifically to support development on the internet had just exploded. So there was really not much available in 2002. Um, but by 2009, we had a very robust, mature 
Apache Foundation and all of these great networking technologies. Um, people's computers were much faster. There's many more people online. We were much more experienced. It was very easy to raise money. So like if you just like look at any factor in a giant matrix of like things that would lead this to be a good plan or to be successful, we had shifted from like a two out of 10 to an eight, nine, or 10 out of 10, um, except that that idea was still not very commercially viable. <laughs> Same idea, like better graphics. Do you think, <laughs> do you think that idea is ever going to be commercially viable? Well, I mean, so uh, not, I mean, we could have kept going and paid all of our salaries and been happy and it would have been interesting, but we had taken by that point like $17 million in, in um, VC money. So um, I felt like it would have been an aberration of the responsibility and the kind of contract we made with them um, to, to just do that. Um, so we had to think of something else. So you said 17 and a half million in funding you had. Um, you were around 45 employees around the time. So you find yourself in a familiar situation and you have to shut down that game again. Um, what was the toughest part about that decision the second time around? So the second time around it was very different because it wasn't just, hey, um, everyone, we, we are now as a group going to switch what we're working on because there was animators and musicians and writers and um, illustrators, level designers, a whole bunch of people who just didn't have skills that were transferable to, um, to Slack. So a lot of people were going to get laid off. Um, I think there was 35. Um, and in the three and a half years that we have been running the, um, the various versions of Glitch, there was a like, pretty strong and very active, robust community that wasn't like the, the couple hundred people who tested Game Never Ending could just start using Flickr. They, they were going to disappear. And I think this is a hard thing to relate to or understand if you haven't gone through it. And it's, it's um, maybe something that hasn't happened in a long time and, and might not happen again. Like Tumblr seems like the last platform that had closed communities like that, whereas now everything, like Instagram is just one world connected. To Facebook is one world. Twitter is like everyone. And there are definitely sub-communities, but um, when communities exist, into one specific platform and that platform disappears, it's a little bit like that moment in the first Star Wars when Alderaan gets blown up. Like it's just that society, that little culture, um, those relationships just won't exist anymore. Um, so it's very, look, that was very sad. But obviously for me, the, you know, it's, first of all, it's embarrassing. Um, we did all this press and made all these claims. I had convinced all these people to come. I had convinced, anytime we got any press, it was, I had convinced them to do it. Every time we got invested, um, I had convinced them to do it. But more than anything else, I had convinced all these people to come work on this. And um, I told that story many times, but um, the, the day that I made the announcement internally, I called this all hands. And people were already a little bit apprehensive because we'd been through a couple of different, like, here's the last thing we're going to try. Um, and this wasn't a day when we normally had an all hands. And I uh, locked eyes with someone as soon as they started talking um, who but two or three months before, I had convinced to move to a new city with his um, wife and two-year-old daughter away from where his in-laws lived, and his in-laws were helping take care of the kid. He moved to a new city, bought a house, um, and now I was going to tell him that he didn't have a job anymore. That was really, really hard. I mean, I think that that's um, the, like, the impact on me reputationally or financially was in the grand scheme of things, in relatively insignificant. Like I would just bounce back again. Um, but it's 
that's more than just disappointing someone. Like I was gonna come meet you for dinner and I bailed at the last minute or something like that. This is like, I convinced you to change the, alter the course of your life um, in, a, in a really significant way and then didn't, it didn't happen. So that was very, very difficult. In, in the end, you know, like a little bit of positive news because we had um, five and a half million dollars left of that money, we were able to shut down in a relatively elegant way. So we made, um, a portfolio site which had everyone's resumes and did a bunch of reference letter writing and kind of career coaching and um, uh, helped get everyone a job. In most cases, a better job than they had um, <laughs> when they were working for us. Um, and we were able to give um, customers the choice of their money back or we could donate it to charity or, or whatever. But, um, and, and that one person, Tim Leffler, ended up joining Slack like a, a year later, so that part all worked out too. But it doesn't mitigate at all like what it felt like in that moment. It was really, um, it was pretty terrible. That's, that's pretty heavy. So how did you go from that terrible moment to launching Slack, which reached a billion dollar valuation and record setting pace of eight months? Um, that worked out super well. I mean, the, <laughs> we had developed this, like, a system that was the proto Slack. Again, 92, I mentioned one of the software um, like network tools that I used was called IRC, or Internet Relay Chat. And uh, we used IRC at TinySpec, the company that made Glitch. And it's a very old technology, so it's, um, with most messaging systems, that, probably every messaging system you've ever used, there's a concept of what's called store and forward. So I'm, if I'm gonna send a message to you but I can't reach you right now, like there's no connection to your endpoint, your client or your device, it'll just be held and then forwarded to you the next time you connect. But IRC didn't have that. If you weren't connected at the moment that I sent the message, you would just never receive it. So we built the system to log the messages. But once we had the messages in the database, we wanted to be able to search them. So we built search on top of that. And then like bit by bit, kind of feature by feature, we built things to integrate with our file server. So when someone uploaded a file, it would get announced into IRC. Or if a, um, an alert went off in our data center, then that would get put into IRC. And slowly, we developed the system, which was like really um, the foundation of all of the ways in which the company communicated and was really beneficial. And so we realized, huh, none of us are ever going to work without something like this ever again. Other teams of eight software developers would probably like it as well. And so we decided that's what we're going to do. And we thought that one day, in the fullness of time, if we had every single person who could possibly use this, we would have $100 million in revenue and thereby be a billion dollar company. So, and that just happened very quickly. <laughs> yeah, I definitely think the math checks out. Um, so, so with Slack, you created a product that not a lot of companies knew they needed. How did you convince them otherwise? That was tough. The first, first like three or four external teams to use Slack, it took um, dozens of tries. Like, going to their office and showing them. And I think we learned a lot there about, um, marketing probably isn't the, the right term, but um, and I think we actually had this problem a, a little bit with Flickr because Facebook came out and just uh, stole the social photo sharing market while Flickr was trying to decide whether it wanted to be social photo sharing or like a community for people who are interested in, in photography. But if you can't explain what you're doing well enough that someone to whom you explain it can go on to explain it to someone else, then it's a real problem because otherwise, otherwise you're going to have to do all the explaining. Um, so we struggled to figure out the way to talk about it, the, like what advantages it had, what it was for. 
Um, but when you're when it's net new and it's not replacing something else, it's very difficult. There's um, I don't know if it's still frequently read, but there's a classic book in in marketing called uh, Positioning, Jack Trout and Al Reese, I think. Um, and one of the things they talk about is if something's a new concept for you, it's almost impossible for it to get purchase in somebody's brain, in somebody's mind. Um, so you have to find something else that they that already exists there and then alter that idea, which is why you hear Uber for whatever. Um, because if you had to explain the whole thing from scratch, it's just very difficult. It's why you hear like movie pitches that are, you know, Jaws meets Star Wars or something like that. Um, <laughs> and it's much easier to get that than to start from, from scratch. Uh, but it was like it was a real slog to get anyone to even try it. Um, and the encouraging thing was once people started trying it, they almost invariably stuck with it. They logged in every day. It became like it was for us the foundation of how they communicated. Mm -hmm. And so from 2014 to 2017, there was limited competitors for Slack, given that it was um, such an innovative idea. But in 2017, when Slack had more than 100 million in revenue, which you predicted. 650 employees and a valuation of around $5 billion, Microsoft launched their Teams app. Um, how did you feel when you found out that app was coming out? Um, I think mostly just good because it, it validated the idea. Um, and we had some advanced notice that it was coming out. because so we worked with Microsoft on um, some, some stuff, like early stuff with Microsoft Research. Um, on building question answering bots for, for Slack. And um, had a pretty good relationship with a guy named Chi Lu, who was a software exec at Yahoo, who was the CTO of Microsoft. Um, left around then to go be to take over Baidu. But um, uh, we weren't especially worried just because when it was the first, you know, be before it was first announced, it was called uh, Skype Teams. Um, and it had a pretty different approach and was just so far behind us from a product perspective that we weren't worried about people switching. Okay, so now in 2020, how do you feel about Microsoft's team app? Um, well, it got a lot better as Microsoft. <laughs> um, I think there's, there's a bunch of things that, uh, um, that make it much more of a challenge for us today than it was then. And um, it's not just that it's better because it's actually not better enough compared to how it was that any of our large customers could, could switch to it. Um, like our biggest um, single user is IBM, somewhere close to 300,000 daily active users, over 10,000 workspaces, and Teams is limited to 5,000 users per workspace, and you can't federate them together, so there'd just be no way to support that kind of um, structure, so it wouldn't work for them. Um, and there's many other things that are like very, very fundamental limitations. So for 5,000 people, you can have 200 channels. And if you want to add a 201st, you have to hard delete one with all of the messages. But none of that really matters um, in the face of if you want to be able to collaborate on a Word doc, like with track changes and, um, and, and send it back and forth, your, con your lawyers working on a contract or um, marketing people working on a press release, and you are an Office 365 customer, you more or less have to use Teams now. Um, and the 100 million users of Skype for Business um, are being migrated over to, to Teams because Skype for Business um, is being shut down. So there's a bunch of things that are, that are kind of force it, but um, maybe most fundamental is uh, we have 12 million? I don't even remember what our public number is on daily active users. 12? Yeah, okay. So um, 
uh, 12 billion, and there's at least 200 million people for whom um, Slack or something like it is, is the preferred way to work. So 200 million people whose working lives are mediated by email, and they're moving over, I think, is inevitable. Um, so that's 6%, which means 94% of people don't use it yet. Um, and if you don't use it and you don't have any idea and, uh, and you hear that there's two alternatives, one Slack and one's Teams, and because you're an Office 365 customer, Teams is already free and integrated with all of your uh, Microsoft tools, then um, why would you even evaluate Slack? Or um, Microsoft was uh, you know, aggressive in a way that was, I think was surprising to a lot of people even who watched the company closely, um, like putting out a press release with our daily active users in it um, during our quiet period post the listing. But if they can put out a press release and tank our share price, then, um, and you're not watching this stuff very closely, you don't have a fine degree of resolution, then you might think as a customer, oh, why would I invest in Slack? I mean, they, you know, they're just gonna be out of business in, in three years. Like Microsoft's gonna inevitably kill them. Um, that doesn't be a waste of my time to even look at it. And it's not like at that point, the fact that they're different really matters to you because you don't use either and it's not really replacing anything. So it's much more of, of a threat now. I think we underestimated the degree of importance. Like the uh, Financial Times person of the year was Satya Nadella. And so there's a big write-up of that. And there's six consecutive paragraphs that are about Slack. And there's like, there's no other, uh, I mean, like maybe the names of some competitive companies are mentioned in one sentence um, here and there, but like it's, it's the, the biggest chunk of it. Um, and so I think that's because um, of all the things that can be used as, as leverage um, by Microsoft to expand relationships inside of uh, businesses, Exchange, the, the email server, and the fact that people are very used to Outlook is like the principal one that, um, that kind of gets them in um, and that makes it difficult for people to, to switch. And if people stop paying attention to email, if email declines in relative importance compared to the other software you use, um, that's a really difficult position for them. So for, from their perspective, I think, and this is what, what Chi Lu thought back um, like 2016, this is, uh, if Slack's successful to the, you know, to, to the maximum extent, that's an existential threat um, to Microsoft. And I don't think that's actually true because so many things, so many other things would change in the world on the path to that. Um, but I think there is a, that is a thought process. Hmm. So despite selling out and actually becoming a consultant, um, I studied mechanical engineering in undergrad. Mm -hmm. And as a black engineer, I really appreciate what Slack has been doing on, from the perspective of diversity and inclusion. Back in 2015, Slack shared a diversity report which revealed that most of their black employees were in technical roles, contrasted with a lot of companies that will hire black individuals primarily into administrative roles. And in that same report, 45% of managers were female, females. So to a room full of individuals who will start companies or be at companies, what advice do you have for creating diverse workplaces? Um, start early. I think that's the biggest thing. When we were... Uh, 20 employees, I would say, I mean, between 20 and 30 maybe, we're like, wow, this is a lot of white dudes. Um, <laughs> and that, in that case, it wasn't too late, um, but it was close to too late. Um, you know, like it, it was like more of a, of a slog to get started, because what happened was 
you, we have one black woman engineer, and then someone, another one comes to interview, and she sees the first one, and suddenly it's like a completely different assessment of what's going on here, and then there's two, and then the third one comes for an interview, and like it feels like there's community, and people talk and have a, have a network. Um, so that, you know, getting started early, I think, is the most important thing, and I think it can be a, um, kind of a fraught topic, I think, for, for people. Like, people aren't sure what to say or they're, not, they're uncomfortable. Um, and I think there's a really pervasive and incorrect belief that um, you would have to lower the bar to hire someone who isn't like the, the canonical candidate, like the arch archetypal candidate for this role. Um, I think that's usually not the truth for, for two reasons. One is, if you just have to look harder, you're going to see more people. Um, and in fact, that can raise the bar. But um, people have different uh, challenges in their life. And I don't think you can you know, perfectly understand someone's background just from their gender um, identity or their, their ethnicity. But on the whole, um, to, for a woman to get to a certain um, place in her career, they had to work a lot harder than a man. Um, for a black engineer to get to a certain place in, in his or her career, they had to work a lot harder than, um, and this is where it gets fraught, um, but, uh, in Ben Horowitz's words, Jewish, Chinese, or Indian guys in, in Silicon Valley, because uh, there's just like these, these networks that are, that are very powerful, um, and you have an enormous advantage. So for two people with like equivalent credentials, um, the person who's probably gonna be more talented, more capable, um, and had to overcome more obstacles to get to where they are is going to be the one who doesn't have the, the traditional you know, archetypal presentation. Oh, that's amazing. Thank you for sharing that. I'm sure, I hope people were taking notes. <laughs> so we've gone through the journey of your career. You started as a web developer. You founded a company that, you, that was acquired by Yahoo. You launched a second company that raised more than $1.2 billion in venture funding, and you eventually took that company public. You've been a leader throughout this entire time. What has changed about your leadership style and what stayed the same? So I think there is, um, it's always hard to really to, to assess yourself. Um, I think I'm relatively self-aware even of those things that don't work and it doesn't matter that I know that they don't work, I still can't change them. Um, but there is a, a difference in, in um, the mechanics of being a leader at different scales, because when it's 20 people and we all kind of know each other, it's, it's very different. Like my, um, I say something um, and then we argue about it and like maybe I change my mind and it's all good. And, you know, there's a power dynamic where I'm the CEO and, and whoever, and, and everyone else is not the CEO. But uh, when you get to 500 people or 1,000 people, where we're at now, a couple thousand people, it's very different. Um, the someone's going to come into a presentation for some new product development, and it's like a relatively new designer or engineer or product manager we've never met before. To me, this is just like one more thirty-minute meeting in my schedule, which is uh, and for them, this is something they've been thinking about for weeks. Like probably, probably talk to their spouse about it, and they're either excited or they're nervous. They want to know. Um, so the um, degree of impact that my words have is like, from the perspective of me, crazy out of proportion um, to the 
amount of action. So in other words, like there's, it's like um, I don't know, a super, super powerful microphone on um, at all, all the time. So if anything's um, negative or critical, if I have a relationship with someone that I've worked together for a long time, it's not really a big deal. Um, if it's someone that, you know, that might be the only time they interact with me ever in their whole career at Slack, or, or like, you know, that might be the first interaction they've ever had with me, and they might not have another one for several years, um, it carries a, a huge amount of weight. So it's hard because, um, is that the amount of time we have, like, including questions from everyone? That is. Okay. So <laughs> I'll try to be a little bit more concise. Um, <laughs> uh, I remember reading on Twitter, people arguing about Warren's tax plan, and someone said something like, um, if Dwayne The Rock Johnson just paid this, this tax at this rate, then um, we would have an extra $50 million, and then um, that's how much it would cost to, to, uh, to solve the Flint water crisis. And it struck me as just a totally absurd argument because the federal budget is something like $2.7 trillion. So 50 million bucks plus or minus is not the reason why that doesn't get solved. Um, it doesn't get solved for all kinds of reasons. And people think that way all the time, that it's just like money or it's, it's just resources. For anything significant to happen, certainly anything that involves dozens of people, let alone hundreds or thousands, the amount of will that has to go in, the amount of like selling, the amount of vision, the amount of like coercion and cajoling, and the amount of encouragement and support, all of those things is just um, enormous. So um, the game does change as the company gets bigger and, and things evolve, um, and I think probably only gets more difficult. But that's you know what I've been learning this whole time is how to do that without like crushing people, um, how to do that without creating an environment where it's you know entirely top down, iron fists from above, um, and it can be tough because you know I have a different perspective than anyone else because I see everything. So I talk to someone in engineering, I get you know at head of sales reports to me, head of marketing reports to me, head of finance reports to me, our general counsel reports to me. Um, so I have a very different perspective than, than um, what is ultimately um, relatively narrow and generally a, a better idea of what we need to do. Because I also talk to customers more than pretty much anyone else other than a salesperson. And I talk to our investors more than anyone else. And I talk to um, our board more than anyone else. Um, yeah, it's, it's really, you know, there, I think there are better sources than me for like top 10 tips. Um, because it, I don't, none of them seem that simple to me. Um, and it's not that they're, they're not out there, but the real um, challenge of leadership, and maybe there's one book I would recommend, which is Leadership and, and Self-Deception. The real like, fundamental challenge of leadership is, is the same as the fundamental challenge of just being a human being. And I think that's, um, Will sound a little bit weird, perhaps, but like living with an open heart um, and not seeing other people as, on one hand, either um, instruments that, that can be used to your advantage or obstacles that are in the way of something that you're trying to do, which is the, the kind of default judgment of all people with whom you are not close instinctually. So, like, you're on a Southwest flight and there's like people are still boarding and the middle seat between you isn't taken, you're like, please don't. Take the seat. Please don't take the seat. Please don't take the seat. <laughs> a person has a whole 
life, you know, and their own um, ambitions and desires and heartaches and stuff like that. But to you in that moment, they're just a potential pain in the ass that might take the <laughs> middle seat next to you. Um, and that, that's pervasive. And when you're really trying to accomplish something, it can be very tempting um, to see people either as instruments or obstacles. Amazing. So we're going to go to the audience for, we probably have a time for about two questions. Um, so. Hi, Stuart. Um, really appreciate your comments on diversity. So it makes me feel better about my Stanford Slack addiction. Um, my question is, what were some of the key and best things you did on the product and design front in the early days of Slack? So for example, how much of Slack's success do you attribute to your personal eye for design versus hiring the best designers versus feature prioritization or, or even just the insight about having a personality? Um, curious what advice you'd share there for aspiring entrepreneurs. Yeah, so I'm not sure I want to like slice it up by who gets more credit, but I think the fundamental approach was um, how much easier can we make people's lives? And when I look at other products, it's really the, um, I don't know what, I'm trying to think of like the shortest version of this I can. Um, it, it can be an amazing app, and if the password reset thing doesn't work, and I need to reset my password to use it, then I'm just locked out. So there's like, there's very basic fundamental things that you can, um, you have to get right, and which aren't the, the interesting ones. In fact, someone tweeted something the other day, which I liked, that kind of illustrates this from a different perspective. And it's someone asking Ray Kroc, the kind of founder and for CEO of McDonald's, why was McDonald's so successful? And he says, because we have clean bathrooms. And they say, that's easy. Um, you know, that's so simple. I don't, that doesn't explain it. And Ray Kroc said, are your bathrooms clean? Um, and it actually is like a challenge. Um, so there's some, some real fundamentals, but the things that we did that were most successful were those things which made life more convenient for people. And one of those was, for example, typing your password on your phone is a pain, so we'll send you a magic link that logs you in. Or um, because for complex reasons, um, most people wanted to have notifications for every message in Slack when they first signed up, so they felt comfortable and, and knew how it worked. But we didn't think that was a good um, way for them to set their preferences long term. After uh, you know, a few notifications, we would interject and say, would you like to switch to our preferred settings? And that kind of thoughtfulness or consideration, that kind of being thinking of yourself as a host and um, the customers as your guests, I think is the, um, the secret, as it were, to good design. I think we have time for one more question. Uh, can you hear me? Yeah. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. So in your answers, it was really clear that like what you've been interested in is kind of facilitating communication through different mediums, whether it be video games, photography, you know, now Slack. Was that understanding clear to you through your journey? And if not, was there like an aha moment that you realized this is what the issue you really wanted to work on was? Yeah, um, I don't, well, so it, the desire was there, but I don't think I recognized it as, as one single thing, because Slack is also a massively multiplayer workplace software. Um, you know, that's the kind of the, the um, principled distinction between Slack and pretty much every other tool. And it is very much like the games that we wanted to play. You take objects and you can manipulate them and distribute them and form groups and, and all of that. Um, but I don't think I really recognized them as being fundamentally similar until uh, much later. The thing that I thought as being the common thread was just it's all software. Um, and 
Software that groups of people use together, to me, is the most interesting set of challenges, because it has all the regular challenges of scalability on the one hand, and, and design and usability on the other. Um, but social dynamics, because of the feedback loop where the output of the system can also be an input to the system, um, are much more difficult to, to design for, and therefore much more interesting. Amazing. Thank you all for the questions. Um, Dharma, it's yeah. been a pleasure chatting with you. <laughs> It's not often that we get time with a classically trained philosopher, so I have a new spin on our typical lightning round. I'm going to ask you a few questions that keep me up at night. Is that okay? Yeah. Cool. So we'll start with an easy one. Is water wet? Yes. Okay. If soap hits the floor, is the floor clean or is the soap dirty? Soap's dirty. Okay. <laughs> dirty soap. All right. I have to make sure I pronounce this one the right way. Right. Does expecting the unexpected make the unexpected expected? No. <laughs> no, we're going with no. Yeah. OK. Um, final one. You ready? Yeah. One word or less. <laughs> what is the meaning of life? Oh, I thought the question was one word or less. <laughs> Uh, for those of you who read um, Douglas Hochstadter, <laughs> familiar with the history of Buddhism, I'll say Mu. Mu? Yeah. We, we have a minute and 20 seconds left. <laughs> so I would love no, to hear it's, more. It's funny. Uh, <laughs> there is like a, like when I said before, uh, contemporary Anglo-American philosophy is really um, boring on the one hand, and, and you take away all the subject matter, there are, there's an enormous um, corpus of research and argument and even books written, but certainly like thousands of papers on the question of do holes exist? Like H-O-L-E. Like is there such a thing as a hole or is it the absence of something? And I, I swear that is a giant argument. So I find it easier just to come down on the side of one or the other. The meaning of life, I don't know, to love one another. Okay, I like that one. Ladies and gentlemen, Stuart Butterfield. Thank you. You've been listening to the View from the Top podcast, a production of Stanford Graduate School of Business based on the Dean's Speaker Series. This interview was conducted by Tylon Garrett from the MBA class of 2020. Our music was composed by Lily Sloan. Follow us on social media at Stanford GSB. You can find more episodes of this show wherever you get your podcasts.